This is Living Philosophy with your host, Dr. Todd May. In this episode, we're going to wander afield from our typical programming and tackle something, well, a bit political and very controversial. We're going to examine the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which derived from the Dobbs v. Jackson case, hereafter referred to as Dobbs. But rather than dwelling and dissecting the political and moral commentary, we're going legal. If you're like me, you may have noticed that the majority of media and social media reactions have focused on the political and moral dimensions as to whether or not one supports abortion. Yet little attention has focused on to what extent the Supreme Court decision was sound and reasonable on a legal basis. To recall, the recent decision is based on the reasoning that the right to abortion is not deeply and firmly rooted in the history, tradition, and text of the Constitution. Therefore, it is not a constitutional right. The thinking seems straightforward in appealing to the idea that rights ought to be specifically and explicitly named, or if they are not, they should at least be detectable as part of a historical context of meaning. The context in this instance is the late 18th to mid 19th century North America. But is determining the meaning of a written text like the Constitution that simple? Is the meaning of its terms reducible to so-called original context? And if we appeal to historical context, what prevents a slippery slope from asking us to determine what prior historical influences might be underwriting the Constitution? Sources such as natural law, or Roman ideas about dominion. If determining historical context were so straightforward, then the right to bear arms per the Second Amendment would mean that we have a right to bear muskets and not automatic and semi-automatic weapons. So there seems to be a lot to consider before we can even move to a political or moral decision when discussing what our constitutional rights might actually entail. And in this episode, we're going to discuss how the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade is driven by a conflict between two opposing legal methodologies, one procedural, the other substantive. On the one hand, there is the commitment to due process of law as merely a procedure, where as long as a process of legal argument and analysis is followed, then that suffices. On the other hand, there is substantive due process of law, which maintains that over and above mere procedures, legal arguments must necessarily consider weightier questions relating to moral, historical, and philosophical questions about dignity, life, and of course, liberty. And as we will see, there is a long-standing historical background to this debate, which takes the form of an either-or. Is a legal document like the Constitution to be taken as a set of rules? Or is it meant to be a resource by which we can determine how certain principles ought to be applied and how their application might in fact change over time? If you prefer the former, you're what legal philosophers call a positivist. If you're the latter, you probably fit more squarely in the modern natural law tradition. If you're confused, well, please stay tuned. Perhaps philosophy can help us gain a clearer understanding. Our guests for this episode, who can help out with this task, are not only legal scholars, but in keeping with the ethos of living philosophy, they're well-versed in the discipline of hermeneutics. As you may recall, hermeneutics is the branch of philosophy concerned 
with the complexities of interpreting meaning in written texts. Legal hermeneutics. I can't imagine a more appropriate field of academic research to help us understand the reasoning behind the recent Supreme Court decision. And so I introduce Professor Jay Moots and Professor George Taylor. Jay Moots is former Dean of the McGeorge Law School at the University of the Pacific. Jay is currently a professor of law in the same school where he teaches, researches, and publishes in the areas of contract, sale, insurance, and employment law. Philosophically, he applies hermeneutics and rhetorical theory to debates and understanding law. Jay is the author of the book, Rhetorical Knowledge in Legal Practice and Critical Legal Theory. He is also editor and contributing author for a number of books relating to jurisprudential topics. In 2021, the University of the Pacific awarded Jay the Faculty Research Lecturer Award, which is given to a senior faculty member with a career of outstanding research and scholarly activity. Jay, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thank you, Todd. It's great to be here. George Taylor is Professor Emeritus of Law at the Pitt Law School of the University of Pittsburgh. George's teaching, research, and publications focus on evaluating the methods by which judges and lawyers interpret statutory and constitutional law. He is author of numerous articles proposing alternatives to current interpretive approaches to understanding law. Philosophically, George is one of the main international scholars on the philosophy of Paul Ricoeur, whose thought examines the roles of language and interpretation and how they are formative of our capacities to understand ourselves and others. He helped to co-found the International Society for Recur Studies, of which he was the first president. George is a distinguished editor of Recur's works, and he is currently developing an edited volume on Paul Recur's lectures on imagination, which were delivered at the University of Chicago. George, welcome to Living Philosophy. And thanks very much, Todd. I look forward to the conversation. Just to recap, Roe versus Wade was the case in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1973 that the Constitution protects a woman's right to have an abortion. The case was brought by Norma McCovey, known by the legal alias Jane Roe, against Henry Wade, who was a district attorney in the state of Texas. Just hearing those facts about the case, we might be tempted to think there is not much one needs to know in order to take a view on the case. It's tempting to jump to a conclusion based on our moral outlooks and convictions. That is, whether we agree or disagree with the right to abortion. But I'm guessing there's a lot more than meets the eye. Jay, one of your specialisms is in the history of constitutional law. Can you say more about some key points of this history that we need to know in order to best understand the legal and historical context of Roe versus Wade? I think a lot of people forget that one of the great innovations in the United States political history has been the development of a written constitution. As a written document, the constitution can be treated in one of two ways, just a set of rules that are written down to be followed, or is more of an imaginative document that guides us in more broad-based reasoning. The first is known as positivism. The idea that we have rules that are followed, law is not a subset of morality, but it is its own sphere. And there we would say as a judge, show me in the constitution where it says X. The other tradition is longstanding, is often known as natural law. Natural law does not reason from the Constitution as a written document with rules, 
but more as a guide for moral decision-making. And what we saw in Roe v. Wade was really the clash of these two approaches, or in the long tradition leading to Roe. And that is, of course, abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution. As a matter of fact, privacy is not even mentioned in the federal Constitution. But the Constitution does seem to protect fundamental rights. Well, how do we square this? Where do these fundamental rights come from? And how can we talk about them if they're not part of the written constitution? Very early in our history in a case named Calder v. Bull, this was the exact issue that was debated. Do we only enforce those rights that are found in the constitution itself? Or is the constitution a repository of larger values that we can reason from? What's very interesting is if you go back to the oral argument in Roe v. Wade, it was not about, on the justices' minds at least, it was not about the woman's right to privacy. Most of the questioning was about the so-called right of the fetus as a potential human. And that has bedeviled abortion jurisprudence for its whole history. On the one hand, there's a claim that there's a right to privacy that is not articulated in the Constitution expressly. But immediately the question arises, what about those whose religious beliefs lead them to conclude that in fact the fetus should be entitled to personhood? And so it's really against that broad background and raising the most fundamental issues you can have about a Constitution that the Dobbs case came down and reversed Roe v. Wade. Jay, I'm wondering if you can give us a characterization about, from your point of view, how well uh, legal students are aware of the clash of these two traditions, and if you have a sense of where a majority of legal scholars with whom you're familiar fall within the debate between positivism and natural law. Well, I think it's clear positivism has won. I mean, we are a positivist law country. I would think natural law is espoused uh, largely by folks who are motivated by religious conviction. So there are, you know, Catholic lawyers who are very indebted to the natural law tradition. Uh, there are a few people like me who think the natural law tradition is unavoidable, but wish to decouple it from its traditional theistic and even rationalistic moorings. So in other words, the tradition of natural law usually, usually is couched in religious terms that there is the, the sort of lawgiver deity and there are moral precepts that are true. The United States, it's more natural rights, decoupled from religion, but still the belief that there are rights that are simply true as a matter of reason and are undeniable. I don't think either of those positions are particularly plausible in today's pluralistic multicultural society, but we still need to talk about fundamental rights in some way. We need a vocabulary for doing that. And in my opinion, hermeneutics and rhetoric provide us with the vocabulary to talk about the issues that are raised in Roe and Dobbs. I want to come back in a moment to the topic of the vocabulary that hermeneutics and rhetorics provides for you. I just want to sort of respond to the very richness of your suggestion and points. From my own point of view, as someone who applies hermeneutics with respect to economic history, and a little bit on the side of, of conceptions of private property, not legal conceptions, but sort of very basic proto-philosophical ideas of what might be 
uh, privatized or alienable according to our sense of who we are as a person or as a private individual. Although I, I really don't like that term private individual, unless we're conceiving of the individual as partially private, partially public, whatever it might be. But the riches of natural law theory, as you described it, that we have to, there is a demand that we try to decouple it from its theistic origins. You can see this moving right up through the modern natural law tradition, which is primarily the 17th century with, um, I'm familiar with Hugo Grotius, Samuel Pufendorf, and so forth. And that interesting idea where they talk about natural law and then somehow modernity, we get really preoccupied and fixed with this notion of natural rights. And it's interesting, you're probably familiar with Jeremy Waldron. He's sort of, I guess, kind of a celebrity legal philosophical scholar in this territory, but he wrote a very influential book, which I don't remember at, at the title at this time. I read it so many years ago, but the book was very interesting because his argument and gambit was that if you really look at the notion of natural rights, so rights that we naturally have as individuals, you're really not going to find a good philosophical rational basis in which to ground those. There's always going to be some kind of fudge or some kind of notion that's not going to be entirely natural. So in the case of the origins of natural law theory, you could say that natural rights, if there are such a thing, is grounded in supernatural conceptions of, of the deity and so forth. And in modernity, Waldron tries to, he looks at Hegel, he looks at Marx, he looks at Robert Notzik, all these, you know, a lot of modern philosophical legal scholars. And so there's always some kind of assumption operative, usually about what the makeup and substance of the individual is. And so I take it from, if I remember correctly, Waldron's point is we can't talk about natural rights as this kind of building block, ground zero of things that we just cannot, that we can build everything upon as if it's self-evident, to use that uh, phrase from the history of the Constitution. So that was kind of a long-winded story, but I think there's a really, there's a great richness, not only in understanding modern natural law, but bringing that critical hermeneutical approach to understand the, the changes in meanings. So can you say more about the way in which you think the terminology and approaches within hermeneutical theory and rhetoric help to open up this territory? And I'm going to press you on this, um, not just for scholars like us, but perhaps in ways in which those kind of theoretical advances might have direct implications for the layperson who is tends to we tend to be operating under the notion that rights, individual rights come first. Yeah, that's a, a difficult question, Todd, but I believe it's it's answerable. And I would fully concur with everything you said. The tradition of natural law morphing into natural rights has not been successful. And by successful, I mean, as you point out, it's always seen as a cover for something else going on. So what I would suggest is, from my perspective, a hermeneutical and rhetorical critique of our practices is, should be very accessible to lay people because it's not a profound philosophical construct. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's calling on people to reflect, how do you exist in the world? Does this strike you as true, that there are immutable, timeless, eternal verities that govern the world? Or do you experience the world differently? So what's natural about my approach to natural law is that human nature is, to its core, interpretive and interactive and social. 
It's not singular, rational, deductive. Perhaps the best way to link this is a scholar by the name of Stephen Smith argued that we live in what he called an ontological gap. Now, that's a big philosophical word, but what he meant was very simple. We have our practices, but our rationale for our practices doesn't fit. In other words, our practice is to argue that there are certain rights that we all have, but we don't believe that there's a there there. There is no the law floating in the, in the outer sphere. So I think the best solution is probably to use a tool that the Belgian philosopher Hein Perelman used in his new rhetoric, where he talked about appeals to the universal audience. Now, this does not mean that there will ever be a universal audience where everyone votes on something. It's a construct. And when we make arguments about justice, we are saying a universal audience ought to accept this principle. Now, is it too little to say that we have a rhetorical debate about what the universal audience might accept? We immediately want to grasp for certainty, what's the answer? What's the right? What is timeless that I can cast my anchor? And the answer is there's nothing there but the dialogue, but the debate, but the act to persuade each other. We have a very fragile democracy. If anything in the last few years has shown us, we have a very fragile democracy, but it's rooted in that human nature of debate and persuasion rather than violence. And the arguments about abortion, I think, really are show vividly. There's no word of God that will convince the universal audience. There's no right floating above our social and political sphere. There's the challenge for us to honestly and openly reason through these difficult issues and to make claims when appropriate that all reasonable people should accept but never to be so presumptuous as to use power to force those who don't accept the argument to comply. It reminds me of the tensions within moral philosophy. And generally, their moral philosophy is characterized in terms of three traditions. There's something called utilitarianism, consequentialism. Then there's something called deontology, which is often associated with Kant and religious thinking, where deontology ascends to the idea that there are certain things that are absolutely right and absolutely wrong. And, and those are sort of the, the building blocks of how we act morally. And then there's another outlier, or there's an outlier called virtue ethics. And what's interesting about virtue ethics is it commits to this idea that we don't know with certainty what the right moral values or precepts are. We have an understanding of what those are. And so committing to a moral practice is a way of making a wager about what's right or wrong, but you just don't make a wager and commit to it blindly. It's sort of, I'm committing to these practices. And as I engage with others who are involved in these practices, in other words, in how I act and react to other people, that should put pressure on me and my community as to whether or not those practices are in fact right. And you might find exceptions that should really challenge those practices that want us to rethink it. Whereas the other two traditions like deontology and utilitarianism slash consequentialism want to begin with a certainty in advance. So that's when you're talking about let's grasp for certainty, let's grasp for timelessness and see. And once we get that, then that will just be the foundation for 
how we can act and conceive of our society. But it's, it's as you point out, it's not that simple. And it seems to me, I don't know if you agree that Roe v. Wade is really showing the cracks and putting the pressures on the ways in which we want to believe that the legal system and also I suppose the constitution has some kind of core essence or substance to it that we can just rely on. And if I understand you correctly, what we should be relying on is not the entity, the document, or these conceptions about universality or timelessness, but rather relying on each other in terms of being able to respect each other in terms of of engaging with one another. Of course, nowadays, that seems to be absolutely the furthest thing possible if you just look at social media and these kinds of things. Well, I think that's uh, spot on. I think Aristotelian virtue ethics, uh, Aristotle's tradition of of, uh, practical reasoning is exactly what this is about. And as Aristotle says in his rhetoric, we can strive only for the degree of precision that the the matter will, will subject itself to. And mathematics is one thing. Constitutional fundamental rights is an entirely different matter. One of the main issues is that it's involved in this whole debate about Roe versus Wade is due process and the notion of a legal notion of substantive due process. Can you say something more about that? And I believe there is something in relation to some case law of Lochner and Griswold. Roe was rooted in what I think most people colloquially refer to as the privacy line of substantive due process cases. So reaching all the way back to states may not forbid married couples from using contraception, that's a violation of this fundamental autonomy, all the way up through Roe. And the idea of substantive due process may sound odd, but that's exactly what the ontological gap is. <laughs> we have a positivist system of due process, but there seems to be a need to talk about this in substantive terms, that there are certain moral limits that cannot be transgressed. And I just want to reiterate, we have to remember in Roe v. Wade, most of the oral argument was devoted to, is there any constitutional status to be afforded to the fetus? And what I would argue is much of the debate over abortion is really about that question. And it's very difficult to surface that even those, even Justice Alito's opinion simply raises this as an issue, but he acts as if it's not motivating what he's doing. And I think there's a a lack of transparency there in that regard. So it's not just substantive due process for the woman's right to autonomy and equality and the ability to control her body. There's this lurking substantive due process question with regard to the status of the fetus under constitutional law. There's an interesting debate since within moral philosophy, there's notions of what constitutes personhood. And by personhood, I'm thinking largely now within the Kantian tradition, personhood is not going to be defined by life, which Kant would describe as the natural creature, but it's going to be described by, uh, it's going to be defined by moral personhood. So for Kant, this is going to be the capacity to reason. And for Kant, reasoning is not just having opinions, it's being able to understand what concepts are and how justification works, et cetera, et cetera. It's the reason why students should be doing philosophy, I suppose you could say. 
Now, within you know, the lack of transparency, I guess, not only with, uh, with Alito's decision-making process, but also the lack of transparency about what we actually mean by the notion of individuality and autonomy, should it just be ascribed to life, the, the evidence of life, uh, and how are we going to define life, whether it's biologically or religiously? And then in contrast to that, the notion of personhood, what does it mean to be a person? And I think perhaps philosophy could provide some insight into that. And that's probably a topic for another podcast, but it does seem like there's just a lot of confusion lurking. And I think a lot of people who tend to side on the idea of pro-choice are angry with the fact or the apparent fact that the Roe v. Wade overturning is simply about the prioritization and privileging of religious convictions and conceptions about life as opposed to any other kind of uh, definition or concept. I'm thinking more about the lack of transparency. I want to turn to George Taylor and ask about the way in which we understand a text as a fixed piece of discourse and how, I guess, is that just an innate bias or prejudice we might have? And then how looking at the constitution from a legal perspective might push back against that or might allow us to see through some kind of process of self-reflection that we ought to be taking the constitution or legal text in general in a different way than we tend to want to in cases of like Roe versus Wade. Like Jay, I, in my remarks, will be adopting a hermeneutic stance and taking from Gadamer here a that meaning, and this is responsive to your question, that meaning is determined not once and for all at a point of origin, but in application. And so that this main hermeneutic principle is that meaning is dependent upon both what we as interpreters bring to the situation of interpretation, which will vary over time and situation, but it's also what the situation of interpretation reveals about meaning, either that we may not have thought about before or may reveal differently than before. And it is important here at the beginning to raise the possible critique of this hermeneutic approach, uh, which would argue that the determination of meaning should not be equated with legal meaning. And for justices such as Justice Alito arguing, at least in theory, that the court should impose constraints on the judiciary so they don't impose in the guise of contemporary application, their own personal views, and I'll come back to that. So then to go further, in in my own remarks, I'm going to be critical of the Dobbs majority, but principally on the basis of the method that it undertook. So it's less in terms of the actual result, but in terms of the methodological approach. And in Dobbs, Justice Alito did write for the majority, and he quickly sets aside the major textual arguments raised in prior cases, including Roe, where the court held that abortion was a constitutional right. I'm not going to respond to that part of his argument in terms of are there more language arguments available, but I can return to that later if useful. So I want to focus on the major argument that Justice Alito raised. And so he noted that in the absence of a more explicit textual basis, the constitutional constitutionality of abortion is rested on the broader language of the 14th Amendment enacted in 1868, which in relevant part provides that no state shall deprive any person of liberty 
So that's going to be the, the critical term, liberty without due process of law. So it's liberty and due process. And as you were talking about with Jay, that there are two sides of due process. One, all sides agree on what's called procedural due process. For example, that in a relevant case, a court has to hold a trial. can't simply be the equivalent of the king saying you're guilty. And so the requirements of procedural due process must must be satisfied. But the court also has a line of cases that have upheld these rights of substantive due process. And as you two were talking about, the notion here is that even where procedural due process requirements are met, the substance of the legal decision may be unconstitutional because in some sense they go too far. So substantive due process provides a peg for the courts to address the natural rights, natural law that Jay mentioned. It is interesting that Justice Thomas in his concurrence flatly rejects substantive due process, and we can talk about that later. But Justice Alito accepts substantive due process for the sake of the argument. He does not rule on the legitimacy of substantive due process in this case. So the question then becomes, what does liberty mean? And Justice Alito argues that in order to restrict judicial discretion, liberty must be defined on the basis of our national tradition. So note the emphasis on tradition. And this tradition must be narrowly defined. Here, the court turns originalist, meaning that it examines whether in 1868, at the time of the 14th Amendment's enactment, abortion was held to be lawful or not. And he concludes firmly that it was not. So in terms of my response, first, and this I think ties into your question, Todd, why the courts focus on a static original meaning of the term liberty? static in the sense of how the framers might have understood the term in 1868. Others have argued that in some cases, the legislative or constitutional language may rightly suggest that the original meaning is more dynamic, open to evolution over time. According to this dynamic argument, why did the framers use the broad term liberty, note, without exemplification or further definition, unless they meant the term to evolve as societal understanding also evolved, which would touch into the kind of discussion dialogue that uh, Jay was getting into. And so we can think by analogy to the right of equal protection that also comes from the 14th Amendment was and was at stake in Brown versus Board of Education. So as most people know, at least in the United States, in that 1954 case, the court held that segregated public schools were unconstitutional as a violation of equal protection, even though segregated schools were the norm in 1868. They allowed an evolving definition of equal protection. And this notion of evolving meaning does seem very hermeneutic. Further, this Evolutionary approach, dynamic approach, is a stance endorsed in the major prior abortion decision from 1992 of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. In that case, the court recognized that in many substantive due process cases, the reasoning rested not on a static original meaning. The Casey court noted, and here I want to quote from a few sentences, 
It is tempting to suppose that the Due Process Clause protects only those practices defined at the most specific level that were protected against government interference by other rules of law when the 14th Amendment was ratified. But such a view would be inconsistent with our law. The court continues, marriage is mentioned nowhere in the Bill of Rights, and interracial marriage was illegal in most states in the 19th century. But the court was no doubt correct in finding it to be an aspect of liberty protected against state interference by the substantive component of the Due Process Clause in the case of Loving versus Virginia. Equally remarkable in both a descriptive and normative sense, the Casey Court endorsed the judgment of Justice Harlan in the 1961 case of Poe versus Ullman, where Justice Harlan wrote that tradition is not static, no tradition is not static, but, quote, a living thing that requires of judges careful judgment and restraint. The Casey Court claimed, and again I quote, the inescapable fact is that adjudication of substantive due process claims may call upon the court in interpreting the Constitution to exercise that same capacity by which by tradition courts always have exercised, reasoned judgment, end of quote. Very similar to what Jay is arguing for. And it is also worth noting that a similar broad interpretation of liberty and substantive due process occurred fairly recently, so not in 1992 in Casey, but in the 2015 decision of Obergefell, where the court upheld the constitutionality of same-sex marriage. There, too, the court quoted positively the language from Justice Harlan about the rule of the court's reasoned judgment. So the claim is that reasoned judgment is different from personal predilection and constrains justices. Opposing justices would disagree. So just concluding then, at least in my opinion, what we have in Dobbs is a court seeking not only to hold that abortion is not a constitutional right, but doing so by a static originalist method that is itself very contrary to hermeneutic principles and to prior judicial methods in the abortion and other substantive due process context. The anti-hermeneutic method became the vehicle for the court to be, as Jay indicates, positivistic in its holding. So I could go on to talk about Justice Thomas's concurrence that rejects substantive due process and its implication for other cases, but we may pick up that later in our discussion. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation, inspiration, and intelligence. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in Real Life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly 
open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www.the letter H, the letter I, the letter N, the letter R, the letter L.org. That's www.hinrl.org. I want to go back, just kind of recap, since there was a lot there, and sort of throw into relief again the, the tension between the two uh, schools of thinking, whether they know it or not, are, are basically at odds. And from it, there's, there's a sense of vertigo that arises. And I think there's a sense of vertigo perhaps on both sides. And so we have the positivist original static interpretation of laws and the constitution. And a sense of vertigo for me that would react critically to that is, well, that opens the door as we might talk about with, with Justice Thomas's ideas, that essentially you have nothing really to say, you have no rational basis really, to, or no secure, consistent footing to say that any kind of rights we've determined uh, post 18th, 17th, 18th century uh, are really good rights. And we ought to just go back living to the way our founding fathers did at the time, because that's what it's, that's, that's the slippery slope and the vertigo that opens for me. But I guess on the other side, you might have someone like Justice Alito or just Justice Thomas saying, or something, someone who's sympathetic with them saying, well, if we embrace these hermeneutic principles that you're talking about, if we embrace the idea that a text or the constitution is a living document or living entity, that just opens the door to relativism and basically anything goes. So I can just make a case for we can, we should start adopting dogs as persons and therefore uh, treat them as moral equals within society. And you can sort of see this reaction against notions of, of um, same-sex marriages, of the, the gay lesbian community, trans, transgendered community, and these kinds of things. Those are seen as steps along the slippery slope. And a lot of people who are opposed to your hermeneutic principles don't want that because it really does mean anything goes. It may not mean anything goes at any one particular moment, but, but that's what it's sliding towards. And so that sense of vertigo arises there. To open up this discussion to a more, uh, between the three of us in a more general critical way, do you have any kind of responses to those two senses of vertigo that hermeneutics opens up to relativism and that, am I right in thinking that if we are originalist static interpreters of the constitutional law. Basically, there's nothing stopping us from saying, right, we should go back and live according to the ways in which our founding fathers did. The notion from these prior cases, the, the claim of recent judgment, uh, that these have to be elaborated, they have to work their way through. One of the important processes with the courts is that it goes through the lower courts first, they reflect then the courts of appeal, their regional courts of appeal around the country, so that it can be a very fruitful discussion over time. Uh, so it's not just that the justices are the philosopher kings or philosopher kings and uh, queens, that they have to be based upon a thoughtful articulation, reflective over time. So I certainly understand the concern about relativism, slippery slope. Uh, I do see on the other side, that I think one of the criticisms, uh, and I think a number of people felt this about the court majority in Dobbs, 
is that the that in this case, rather than engaged in recent judgment, it was the court majority was saying we are the philosopher kings and queens. So in the guise of going back to 1868 and rejecting prior methods, that they could say uh, this is what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, Todd, I think the uh, the vertigo is unavoidable, unfortunately. And I think vertigo is exactly the right uh, sort of metaphor because the idea of having secure certain eternal rights is to give uh, ease to the vertigo. But I want to push this a little further. I think this is strategic behavior. I don't really think that it's uh, philosophically uh, secure behavior. And I'll turn to Justice Scalia, who uh, has passed and obviously was not involved in this case. He pretty openly would describe his originalism as a pragmatic check on judicial power. So in other words, I can't really get back to the true history. I know that. But if we link ourselves to that effort, we will restrain ourselves sort of lashing ourselves to the originalist mass, but not really believing that they can, can recuperate history. And the problem is what George just said, when it's not real, when it's more like a gesture, then it's easily manipulable. If Justice Alito thinks that abortion should not be favored, it's fairly easy for him to write an originalist opinion to support that conclusion. So that makes it highly subject to manipulation. But I also, respecting the other side, want to, want to caution, fundamental rights are not always good things. First of all, the court can be very narrow. Uh, under the notion of liberty and reason uh, elaboration, the court has rejected the right to assisted suicide, which one might think would be higher on the personal autonomy list than, than even abortion. And it's done really terrible things under the guise of fundamental rights. Dred Scott v. Sanford, African-Americans can never be citizens of the United States as a matter of natural law. The Lochner case, states cannot you know, legislate to protect workers because they have this natural right to freedom of contract. So fundamental rights, you don't just say, let's go for fundamental rights and everything will be great. Fundamental rights are a challenge to the polity to reason together to find appropriate guardrails for, for the political deliberations. And remember, Justice Alito will say, I didn't say anything about abortion being outlawed. We're just sending it back to the states. We're saying the Constitution does not put a guardrail on with respect to democratic engagement at the state level which is true, that's, it. that's exactly true. But again, one can read between the lines pretty effortlessly to find, as George said, the philosopher King's desires in this regard. Philosophically, one of the tensions that arises with individual rights and whatever it might come to tension with is I suppose paternalism, you get people who say, you know, the state can't tell me what to do. And of course, in some cases, that's good. You don't want somebody telling you what to do if it's going to disadvantage you in some way. Um, but of course, the opposite is, is also true that you don't want someone just believing they can do whatever they want under the guise of this is my individual liberty. And this is where an historical understanding of the development of rights in the West is really important for me because 
prior to the 18th century, and I'm terrible with dates, uh, but it's more or less that um, prior to the 18th century, or probably just prior to the 19th century, maybe we could say, um, the idea of rights was not something that was foundational and privileged in the way that we take it today. So when we when we talk about rights, we think that comes first, rights are first. But what a lot of historical thinkers understood, including John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, uh, is the idea, and I'll throw Thomas Aquinas in there as well, uh, is the idea that rights only arise as a result of a functioning polity. So you cannot have individual rights based on the individual if that comes into, uh, if, it, if it comes to compromise the integrity of that polity. And so today what people don't understand is when they say it's my right to do X, Y, and Z, or sorry, I'm American now, X, Y, and Z, um, they don't understand that that, on, that right only prevails when it doesn't disadvantage the polity as a functioning entity. Why? Because without the polity, we wouldn't have what we have. You wouldn't even have your individual rights. And so long as it doesn't disadvantage other people. And I think if people don't grasp the idea of disadvantaging the polity or the state, which tends to be a bad word for most people, at least they might be able to understand that you can't disadvantage another person. So where, whenever I try to claim a right to do something, if that disadvantages another person, then the, the, those conflict of rights means there's something wrong and you can't exert your right to do that. So in the case of Roe v. Wade, uh, you could see that the right to pro-life is definitely coming to con conflict or disadvantaging people who want the right to have an abortion in certain circumstances or whatever it might be. So I think there's a broader historical context that I think is important to understand whether or not uh, that historical context is going to filter into the social imagination is a different question. And I'm a big proponent of having the right kind of uh, education where it's going to be a liberal arts education where these kinds of ideas can be taught to future generations and so forth. But I also wanna come back, sorry, that was my spiel. That was um, part of my, my background in looking at the history of economics and political thinking. But I wanna come back to this really important term tradition. And I think people tend to have two reactions to the term. One, they're pro-tradition, they love it. And perhaps pro-traditional people think that uh, as you know, to, to harp on about this, uh, it's to go back to some certain period where we, we think that things were right in the golden age. And we've heard both of you talk about how this is a naive conception of tradition. And then you have those who are anti-traditionalists. We don't want tradition because that's just going to hamper us. And those are just two views of the same coin, as it were. And I know the idea of tradition is really important within the hermeneutic tradition, whether you uh, look at the philosophy of Hans Jörg Gadamer or the philosophy of Paul Ricoeur. So I don't know either of you or both of you want to come back on the notion of a richer sense of tradition, what it actually entails, and how it might be something that's exemplified within everyday society for people to, to say, oh yeah, that is the case. What's interesting to me, obviously, in terms of my earlier comments, to see from Justice Harlan in the Poe versus Ullman case, his notion of tradition is not static, but living. And further, and this has often been quoted, that he talked about tradition as both what we take from the past, but also how we break from the past. And I think the notion is not simply that we reject something that's gone before, but there may be a deeper sensibility, for example, in terms of notions of equality that we are uh, uncovering, coming to terms with. And so we think we are adhering to the larger underlying principles, but that requires a 
divergence from, say, particular rulings, uh, particular uh, notions that we now think are outmoded. And then finally, I think there's a similar approach in the work of Paul Ricoeur, who is uh, very attentive to notions of tradition, but he distinguishes between sedimentation, so what has gone in the past, and notions of innovation. And so innovation is not simply, he, he argues quite strenuously that innovation is not simply an absolute rupture, but it's a transformation or transfiguration of the past, building upon the past that can deviate the past. So for me, both orientations are more subtle in their notions of the uh, complexity and richness of tradition. The hermeneutic philosopher Hans Georg Gadamer spoke about the deepness and richness of tradition in every moment of our of our life and current understanding. And this often was viewed as being a very conservative approach. You're, you're living in the resources of tradition. But I think George articulated it very well. We are constantly remaking, breaking, remaking, breaking tradition. It's a living process. It's not going back to a fixed point in time. And so Gadamer would speak about prejudices. And I think really what he meant by prejudices is the sedimentation of tradition. But he would speak about we are constantly striving to eliminate unproductive prejudices but to develop prejudgments, which is not a negative thing, but to draw from tradition the resources where we can make the reasoned argumentation and reasoned elaboration of principles of constitutional law, for instance. It should be deeply traditional. The, the originalists have that right, but as George pointed out so effectively, they believe that it's somehow fixed in amber uh, hundreds of years ago and do not see that it's a living tradition we all embrace every day as we go about our business. So one of the ironies about Paul Ricoeur and Hanger Gadamer in this instance is that they both saw legal interpretation and argument as the exemplar of hermeneutics. And here we are in 2022 with the bottleneck, wrong-headed thinking in my view about what's happened with the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade. But I wanna to turn to Justice Thomas and where he stands within the debate. And of course, we tend to want to focus on the idea that the entire US Supreme Court voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. In fact, that wasn't the case. And so I wonder if you can explain the dynamics going on as you see it in the US Supreme Court and what things we need to be aware of, what things we need to be concerned with in regards to Justice Thomas and his stance, as I understand it, as being against what we've been talking about in terms of substantive due process of law. The Justice Thomas picks up an issue that technically was not at stake in Dobbs, whether substantive due process itself is, is constitutional or not. And Justice Leto, as I said earlier, accepted for the sake of argument. So Justice Thomas in his concurrence in the decision and this is a stance he's held for quite some time and articulated in prior opinions of his, argues that substantive due process is not lawful, that only procedural due process, the right process, uh, that the court should never intervene to protect underlying notions of rights that are not more ex expressly articulated in the Constitution. 
And the implications for that would be in cases I mentioned, uh, Loving versus Virginia from 1967, interracial marriage. Marriage itself is marriage itself constitutionally protected so that if some states, for whatever reason, don't want to allow it. Griswold from 1965 provided protection under substantive process for individuals to choose to have uh, birth control. And so those would be eliminated from being constitutional decisions that would be left to the states, either in terms of their constitutions or their statutory uh, schemes. And just one additional detail here, often these arguments rest upon the level of generality. Uh, So if the court were to accept that marriage is constitutional somehow, would interracial marriage, a broadening to interracial marriage or same-sex marriage, as in Obergefell, would those go by the wayside? So I think that is uh, part of the concern of some responding to the Dobbs decision that the court may be open to rejecting substantive due process in the future. And most worrisome is that Justice Thomas actually names some of the cases. He references Griswold contraception, Lawrence uh, criminalizing same-sex acts, and Obergefell same-sex marriage as cases that he regards as, as dubious. Interestingly, he doesn't mention a loving case uh, because, of course, he is married to a white woman and one would expect that he would appreciate the fundamental nature of that of that right. But I, I feel it was a real shot across the bow, a kind of you ain't seen nothing yet, because Justice Thomas is very I mean, he, he was more conservative than Justice Scalia. And there have actually been studies that show that Scalia followed him more than he followed Scalia. So I think he's he's signaling his personal intent for sure that this whole line of substantive due process ought to be uprooted and just as they did with Roe. I just can't help but see this as politically motivated. So beyond what we've discussed so far in this podcast, are there any more, well, I won't say any more, that's not the right way to describe it. Are there any compelling philosophical reasons for why someone like Justice Thomas wants to call into question these prior cases, apart from that he's just simply a narrow originalist in the sense that Alito, Justice Alito was not. Is there anything that I'm missing that if I had read, I'd question my own philosophical principle or really think what I'm doing? Todd, you're raising an important question. I think the claim uh, by Justice Thomas is that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, should be quite limited in its rulings. And we could go on to analyze in other cases on other issues, as Justice Thomas, for example, limited, but we'll set that aside. So if the court should be limited in its ruling, then it's left either to the states or more generally to the political process. So the political process should make these decisions rather than the court. Again, one of the claims of Justice Thomas is that he he does not want to be the philosopher king And one of the questions is whether they're doing so going in the opposite direction. But I think it's a notion of protection of the political process and getting the court out of the game. 
And so that the court should be restricting itself in terms of the kinds of cases in which it rules. I think that's exactly right. But I would note this is an extremely important issue, fundamental rights. But it's kind of one blip on the radar screen all across constitutional doctrine. Fundamental questions are being reconsidered. Uh, There's something called the non-delegation doctrine in administrative law that we don't have time to get into. But even that is up for grabs, that the modern administrative state is beyond the scope of its originally intended power. So there could really be some transformational decisions in the next 10 years if this keeps up. I just want an additional comment as well, similar, uh, similar lines to Jay's. One of the points being raised by the court majority, as you mentioned, is, is not, it's, it's not saying that uh, abortion is prohibited across the country, but leaving it to the states and that it should be a state's decision. And this then ties into there have been significant issues being pursued at the state level in terms of apportionment gerrymandering, other voting restrictions. And so simply to say, well, the states is an open political process that would need to be scrutinized as well. Yeah, it points to a fundamental philosophical error for me. And I'm sure there's a great term that's been coined by some political philosophers about this, but it's the error of thinking that smaller governance bodies are actually more efficient and better at determining what democratically what ought to be done. This was something that was prevalent in Brexit that uh, uh, you know, outside the EU, Britain's gonna function much better as if suddenly if Britain left the EU, you would have virtuous politicians within Britain suddenly mm-hmm. arise and govern things accordingly as we saw that was a complete debacle and uh, continues to be so to this day. If anything, I've learned from smaller institutions, okay, you can get small virtuous institutions, but I've seen small institutions be entirely dysfunctional from, um, HOAs or housing authority, you know, administrative bodies to yacht clubs not functioning very well at all, functioning in the notion of, of invested interest, uh, you know, these kinds of things. So, and it's not to say that a larger entity or organization is going to do better, but um, I guess it's the question of what constitutes a virtuous structure of polity, what constitutes virtuous organizations. And I suppose if we really understood what's going on with that, then we might have a better democratic process of public discussion. And just to simply think that states are going to do it better, uh, you know, here's the slippery slope on this one. Why not? Why shouldn't Roe versus Wade become a county decision? Why shouldn't it become a city decision? And those are the kinds of things that are very inconsistent for me and very worrying for me as a philosopher that we can't quite see the implications of the positions that we're holding. Yeah, just two quick comments. First, I think you articulate, uh, Todd, very important point that goes back to where Jay opened us up in terms of the the quality of the, the democratic decision making. Who has a seat at the table? Are they able to participate? So it's not just vested interests that are going their own way. And I think that's a very troubling issue for us uh, today. And I would, would say uh, in terms of uh, devolution of rights to local uh, issues, there is what's called questions of preemption. Can a, can a county make a decision that's different? And for example, in the environmental area, some counties have strenuously tried to be more environmentally conscious than the state. 
should they have the right to do so and, and so forth. So depending upon the issue, I think that's a complex uh, set of issues. I would agree. Chief Justice Roberts concurred in the decision. He voted to uphold the law at issue, which banned abortions after 15 weeks, but he refused to overturn Roe v. Wade. And some find this a very unsatisfactory approach that he didn't he didn't go all in, so to speak. But I find it interesting from a philosophical point of view, even though it's really a pragmatic approach. He said Roe was at war with itself from the start, because on the one hand, you had the woman's right to choose. On the other hand, you had the potential for human life. They use viability as a marker. With increases in technology, viability got sooner, sooner, sooner. As he put it, Roe was on a collision course with itself. In the Casey decision, the court did away with the trimester framework and started the undue burden framework. And what I see in Justice Roberts was an attempt. It, it, it could never succeed, but to try to recuperate some notion of reasoned argumentation saying 15 weeks is generally enough time for a woman to choose. Viability is coming down. We ought to just protect the, think of this as protecting the right to choose. There's no reason to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, of course, states are pushing test cases and the the result was preordained. But I would say if there's a glimmer of hope, it's that there might be on the more conservative side of the judiciary, still a sense that reasoned elaboration of fundamental rights is is important to preserve and not to casually cast aside the Roe precedent. So if I understand correctly, then where Roe v. Wade, or you know, that people say nowadays post-Roe, uh, where we're going is the idea that we grant rights to the fetus. Let's say it, you know, science helps us determine that it's life begins very close to the point of intercourse or whatever it might be. Um, so then we're just, we have another war going on. It's the rights of the fetus versus the rights of the, 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 the mother, the woman. And, you know, having looked at some of the phenomenology of birth and so forth, because one of my PhD students was uh, doing the phenomenology of monozygotic twins, a lot of the literature describes being pregnant as actually a parasitic relationship where the fetus is has a parasitic prey upon the mother. And um, that's why you get a lot of these adverse reactions happening during the state of pregnancy. And I'm not saying that's absolutely the case. I'm just commenting on that as someone who has read some of the research. So it seems like it's, is this one of the directions which we're going? It's, it's coming back to this notion of if we ground rights as the fundamental building block of a, of a society, you're always going to get the conflict of rights between individuals or certain groups of individuals versus other individuals. And you're not going to really have the basis to decide which group is right or wrong. And so you're going to have to commit. And this is going to cause, uh, it's going to fracture society based on this. It's going, there's, it it just says to me, this is one of the reasons why to, to go on again about this topic that rights cannot have this privileged place in understanding as to what practices we should commit to. I think your points are important, and I think they go back to the notion of recent decision-making. I think it's also uh, what you're in part articulating in our current political process. Part of the difficulty is that we infrequently see the need to compromise. We're, we're going to try to push our political 
orientation as far as we can to get what we think is important. And so the notion of a compromise that's not simply an instrumental compromise, but it's a principal compromise, I, th I think that's very difficult for people to understand and to accept. As Gadamer once put it, it would be a poor hermeneuticist who thought that he had to have or could have the last word. So I'll, I'll uh, defer to you to close the show. I want to turn to the question of the future in terms of education. You have both spent your careers teaching within law, teaching the current and future uh, students within the legal profession. And there is an economist named Robert Nelson, who I think the book was from the 80s, who once remarked that uh, economic science, if it's a science, is, is not very good. And economists know this, or at least economists he knows know, know this. But the problem with economics as an academic discipline is that it, it knows it's, it has a lot of faults, but it's not quite sure how to fix it because they don't know how to change the curriculum uh, or agree about what to change in the curriculum. And so you just get this state where they just keep on teaching the same old stuff, knowing that it's broken. So is that analogy apt for the study of law within academia? Is there a sense in which the discipline of hermeneutics or uh, a viewpoint like hermeneutics is important or integral to what legal students and future attorneys and judges are learning? Or is this is the hermeneutic view that we've discussed today very much of the minority within academia and law schools? I'll jump in first so that George can finish with a more optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm uh, extremely pessimistic about the state of legal education. And it's because it's so important and law is so important and lawyers are so important to our polity. I wrote a chapter in a recent book on Gadamer's philosophy, and the chapter was Gadamer and jurisprudence. And they said, describe his impact. And my book chapter was about the lack of impact. The problem is, I think, the fundamental hermeneutical and rhetorical insights that really look to laws and exemplar, as you said before, Todd, of, of practical reasoning just are not appreciated, understood, or pursued in any rigorous way. It's, uh, as a, a fellow colleague once told me, I was asking about his approach. He said, we're in the same boat. It's a very small boat, but we're in the same boat. And there's that feeling that law has become so hyper-technical on the one hand. We probably have too many lawyers in our country working on things that don't add real value to the daily lives of, of people. I, I find the law, I mean, I have colleagues who teach constitutional law who can barely do it anymore because they're discouraged at the, at the level of discourse and the possibility for sort of genuine reasoned elaboration. So I'm not thoroughly despondent. When I go into the classroom, I only have one goal try to inspire in the students the ability to critically read and then critically espouse issues related to law. Uh, speak, you know, reading, understanding, and speaking to me are the core attributes rather than highly technical, don't worry about the right or wrong or the implications, just sort of learn, learn the process. Now, you might say, well, don't law professors talk about the greater ideals 
But I often find those are personal political commitments more than embedding them in the process of legal reasoning itself. So that all sounds very pessimistic. I'm just grumpy this morning. But I think what it really shows optimistically is my deep belief in the project and just the worry that we're not fulfilling our important role in in modern civil society. In my own sense, I think one of the criticisms of law and legal education is that uh, lawyers are taught to argue any position. So that could arguably be a rhetorical uh, abundance that you can use argument to advance any position that your client wants. More substantively, what I have tried to, to teach students is the, and it, I think, Jay, in your presentation, you certainly touched upon this, to look at legal sources and to make uh, substantive legal arguments, and that's a skill, and then also to be able to evaluate other legal arguments to be able to respond to them. So ultimately, it matters less to me what the p- particular political orientation or social orientation of a student is, but their ability to make reasoned arguments and to understand objections and respond to potential objections. That's a sophisticated form of reasoning uh, to me. And I think I, I certainly appreciate some of the difficulties of teaching in the contemporary context, given some of the, the rulings uh, that Jay mentioned earlier, including the legislative side. But one healthy aspect of that is for students not to assume that there is one inevitable trajectory that is going one particular way. And so I take more of a long view that students can see that if the court's going one direction now, it had a different direction years back, could they be participants in helping the court to go whatever particular direction, either for the, on the basis of their client or, say, in a public interest, interest that they might want to pursue themselves? So I don't think that the door is closed. I think there is some openness in terms of uh, changes, but it's going to take some time for the changes to occur. And I would just add quickly, many students are motivated by all the right reasons. So this is not a, when I was discussing, it was not so much the students, but what they face in the legal academic machine and then what practicing law is really like. If you're really fighting for civil rights and practicing law, what is it like? It's not glorious uh, closing arguments in front of an esteemed panel of brilliant justices. Oftentimes, it's fighting for discovery from duplicitous local lawmakers. As, as Todd mentioned, the local can be as particular. So the law is the most beautiful and important thing in our society. It's probably uh, much more fragile than people think. So I'll keep teaching it and hope that we are able to deal with issues like abortion, decisions to reverse important precedents in ways that don't fracture us as a society and allow us to continue this, this great experiment in democracy. Jay Moots, George Taylor, thank you for your time. And thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy. Thank you, Todd. You're welcome, Todd. Thank you. If you would like to know more about the research and publications of Jay Moots and George Taylor, please visit the podcast blurb for social media links and websites. If you found this discussion insightful and informative, please share the podcast link. We could use more philosophical discussion in our lives. If you would like to become a sponsor of Living Philosophy, please get in touch with us. 
via the philosophyq.com website. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast and help spread the word. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.